0: Welcome and good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you may be on the
1: planet. This is World Smart, a podcast of the Aaron Fox Schiff Law Firm. We are your hosts and International Practice Group co-chairs. I am Hunter Carter.
0: And I'm Malcolm McNeil. And we'll be talking with you with our partners and special guests about topics of interest in the law of the international business and business-related communities. Well, welcome everybody, and Hunter, what I'd like you to do is why don't you introduce today's guest, Well, thank you, Malcolm.
1: We're very fortunate today to be joined by partner at Sanchez Devani in Mexico, a firm that is very good friends with us here at Errant Fox Schiff. I'm still getting used to saying that since our merger with Schiff Harden, but we've had for many years a good relationship with the folks at Sanchez Devani on trade issues, on automotive issues. And so today we have Eduardo Sotelo Calduro, who's with us. Eduardo is a very impressive gentleman. He has 15 years of experience advising domestic and international companies in different aspects of, you know, international trade, customs, automotive, textiles, retail, chemical, electronics, all the areas you might think of in Mexico, aerospace, maquiladoras, trading companies, and all aspects of really international trade and customs operation. He deals with free trade agreements, NAFTA verifications, now USMCA, of course. He's ranked, of course, by Legal 500 Magazine as one of the leading foreign trade attorneys in Mexico. And if you weren't too embarrassed yet, Eduardo, by that lengthy introduction, let me welcome you to the program.
2: Thank you very much, Hunter and Michael. And thank you very much for contributing. us, I mean, and restating this good relationship we have between the firms. And congratulations again, I mean, for this merging process. Hopefully, you will have a positive outcome. That's what we wish for you. I mean, the best of luck.
1: Well, thank you, Eduardo. We're quite happy coming into the merger. It makes a lot of sense. And we'll be able, I think, to provide even better service to our clients, especially now that we have a powerhouse Chicago office and Midwestern client base that undoubtedly they will be heavily involved in trade with Mexico. Now, let me kick it off with just a sort of a personal question. Tell us just a little bit more about yourself. What's your background and how did you come to be so interested in and active in being an international trade lawyer?
2: Yes, I mean, it's easy, but at the same time, complex question. I arrived to this practice area for a casuality. Basically I was still in the university when I submitted my resume within the legal department in the university and somehow it landed in a firm which managed to have a foreign trade practice group. I didn't knew at that time I mean what was that practice area, it was somehow new and I just accepted the position when it landed and they called me. And since there, I mean, I have been active as you mentioned, I mean, for almost 17 years in this practice area. What I'm basically interested of it is because I somehow learn about different industries. If I'm defending, for instance, a solar panel case, where I need to litigate for the specific tariff classification that should be the applicable one. I need to understand the composition of a solar. And I managed to basically review and analyze the components to actually defend some of the cases. So this industry, I mean, this practice group is basically amazing in that kind of sense because you need to get to some manufacturing sites to understand basically how the operation is conducted, to have a full reference of what you are trying to achieve in a case. So I love this kind of work. Also, if you add some new components in the world, such as e-commerce, I mean, that basically all arrives or is in some point related to the foreign trade, because at the end, I mean, you are facing their supply chain and you're facing their sales occurred abroad that basically are held with the main purpose of sending goods to Mexico. I mean, it all ends in foreign trade. And essentially, that's what I love of this practice. Talking about me, I mean, I'm a young lawyer actually within the firm. I'm actually the youngest partner within Sanchez Ebani. I've been here for many years and I have scaled within the firm since I was pretty young, which is somehow impressive within the Mexican legal market, which is somehow new in contrast with the U.S., you have like big, big law firms with many, many practitioners who are somehow growing, I mean, in that kind of sense. I mean, the legal market in Mexico has been growing so fast, but frequently you see that the growth in the legal firms in Mexico is comprised by bilateral by partners' hirings instead of organic. So I'm really happy of being an organic growth within the firm. And essentially, I mean, I have two kids, two young daughters that I love the most. So I like the part of seeing the woman as well, growing this legal industry. As a dad of two little daughters, I mean, I'm enthusiastic of trying to create that different world and try to open some doors that have been closed specifically in Mexico, for women and in this profession. So I don't know if you want to know anything else about me.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a beautiful introduction. And speaking of powerful women, we, of course, have been introduced to each other from my good friend in your firm, your partner, Mariana Eguiarte, who is a tax lawyer. And I've appeared with her on some diversity panels sponsored by Chambers, and I think you're very fortunate to be her partner as she is you. Malcolm, why don't we turn it over to you? There's a lot going on in trade issues. Eduardo has come into full blossom as a trade lawyer with NAFTA and now USMCA, but there's so much more going on in all of those issues. I'll turn it over to you, Malcolm, to explore one or two of those.
0: Thank you so much, Hunter. And Eduardo, yes, thank you so much for being with us. And I enjoyed your introduction because we have a friend that likes making introductions and says, let me tell you what's on the reverse side of my card. So you told us a little bit about what's on the reverse side of your card, and that's great. I'm part of the U.S.-Mexico Chamber of Commerce. We're based in L.A. Obviously, Hunter is in New York, and I'm here in L.A. holding down the other coast. And we've had an opportunity to recently go to Valle Guadalupe and to visit the burgeoning wine region and we were amazed. I met the mayor of Ensenada and I'm working with a firm that's based in Tijuana. And as a result of that, much of what we've done has been internal, meaning the inbound investment into the U.S. Tell me a little bit about it from your perspective regarding investment into Mexico. I mean, people are asking me and now people are curious, saying, is it safe? Is it a place to do business? What are the profits like? You know, what should I do? And there's a renewed interest and excitement. So can you tell us a little bit about that business from your perspective
2: First, I would like to say that lucky you that you had the opportunity to visit the Valle Guadalupe. It means an excellent place. Unfortunately, I haven't find the time to go there, but lucky you. Now, with respect to what you are asking, I mean, Mexico continues to be an attractive destination for investors for many reasons. Although with Mexican government revising previously made reforms to sectors such as transportation, energy, and telecommunications, the focus of investors may be changing. One of the biggest changes for Mexico has been its trade policies. Mexico, I mean, although it has executed free trade agreements with almost 46 countries, and, and has become a global manufacturing base, which strong links to consumer economies uh, linked, obviously, to North America and, obviously, South America. The country, I mean, it offers a strategic location, proximity to these major consumption centers. You were in Tijuana. I mean, in Tijuana, in my view or in my experience, I mean, many electronic companies are based there. You have Samsung, you have LG and many, many others. This is like the environment we are seeing right now with respect to Mexico. I mean, that these changes from the government impact somehow the decisions from investors. There are still, I mean, many hurdles to overcome when doing business in Mexico. I mean, having local knowledge of the investment environment and good information of the legal aspects and taxation, obviously, and accounting, it's always really, really important. When you're thinking of establishing or starting a new business in Mexico. I mean, some years ago, it was really, really complex. I mean, I I can say that now, I mean, incorporating a new entity takes around two weeks. However, I mean, there are many, many other issues that you can face when dealing with a business in Mexico. For instance, construction, Permits can be a pain or a headache because, I mean, you can basically sit to wait for an answer for many, many days. But with the appropriate, I mean, legal advice, you can resolve that in a better route. You need to be careful with respect to construction permits and that kind of matters when you're dealing with officials in Mexico because somehow they are related with bribes and that kind of stuff where you want not to be related. So you need to be really careful with construction permits. Getting electricity Somehow it is complex because, I mean, the bureaucracy, I mean, and firms to submit applications and get the certificates and inspection from the Comisión Federal de Electricidad, which is the the National Commission of Electricity in Mexico, somehow could be complex. But again, with the proper advice, I mean, you can navigate that on a smoother way. Registering property as well is an arduous task. The public registry of property and commerce, the workloads are high. So when you're incorporating an entity or buying land and you're dealing with notary publics that need to conduct these registrations, they may take some time. Getting credit as well in Mexico, it's as well a task that can take some time. And investors, sometimes they are concerned in an ongoing business structure and you need to enforce contracts or resolving insolvencies. There are processes that may take some time in contrast with what it happens in the U.S., that the processes might be not so formalistic, somehow more efficient. Labor is another issue. With respect, when you're talking to labor laws in Mexico have a protective nature with respect or towards the employees. So you have that kind of issues and you have a strong unions in Mexico. Besides these downsides with respect to investing in Mexico, I can say that you have legal frameworks. You can do a right investment based on due legal advice. But if you try to navigate these kind of areas alone, you can find some
0: complexities. And I was going to ask you another follow-up that is related. I was recently asked by a client who knew that we had attended this. said, Have there been any significant changes in the maquiladora in Mexico, say, in the last two to three years? Or is it still provided with the favorable tax treatment and all of the other benefits? And maybe you'd like to give a little overview of the maquiladora process for a foreign company in Mexico.
2: Sure. Certainly, there have been many, many changes within the time. Essentially, what I can tell is that the grounds of its creation remain the same. The maquiladora industry basically consists on a export promotion program granted by the Ministry of Economy. So essentially, that remains the same. If you want to incorporate a business and get the proper authorization from the authorities to start conducting importations of raw materials to conduct a manufacturing process in Mexico and and afterwards, I mean, export physically the good abroad or export it virtually by delivering the finished product to another maquila entity in Mexico through a virtual export process. That's why it is called virtual, because you're exporting the good actually, I mean, in paper, but it never goes, you deliver it in Mexico. That remains the same. You have Two type of maquiladoras in Mexico, you have the full-fledged, which basically consists on a manufacturing agreement or maquiladora agreement executed between a Mexican entity holding this authorization from the Ministry of Economy and a foreign entity, which basically consists that the Mexican entity will leave or based on an income received from the foreign party that will pay this income for the manufacturing services that the Mexican entities conduct in New Mexico. At the end, I mean, what this gets you is basically the avoidance of a permanent establishment for the foreign party or a foreign-related party, and that continues the same. You have the other type of maquiladora, which is not a full-fledged. I mean, basically, it's a Mexican entity that conducts operations with non-related parties based... On purchase orders instead of a maquila agreement, and essentially, I mean that remains the same. What we are seeing currently is that, I mean, since you are importing temporary raw materials to conduct a manufacturing process, that's the generality because you have other type of modalities of maquiladoras, for instance, that conduct certain services which do not necessarily alter the nature of the goods you are importing, for instance polishing, or storaging and delivering. You're not conducting a manufacturing activity in Mexico, but you're providing certain services allowed by the Ministry of Economy. Despite which modality you are acting within, the IMEX program legal provisions, at the end, the effects are the same. You need to return abroad whatever you have imported on a temporary basis. The general rule is 18 months. So... Tax authorities are really aggressive with respect to reviewing these kind of operations. And somehow they rely in an automated inventory control system that regulates the ins and outs. So typically, when investors create or incorporate a company in Mexico and they get this type of authorizations, they don't sit and review what would be the compliance programs they need to follow. And after the years, I mean, when they are audited by the tax authorities, it is very common that we face big contingencies because no one heard about this ins and outs process. I mean, really careful.
0: Yeah. Surprise, surprise. Well, with that, 100, let me toss it back to you.
1: Thanks, Malcolm. What a great conversation. I'm enjoying listening to someone who knows so much about how the Maquiladora system works. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I observed that you have really come into full blossom as a lawyer, Eduardo, during the time that NAFTA and now USMCA are really in full effect. And I'm curious, just for a moment before we get into another question about sort of the more substantive things, what is your perspective on how the markets and companies in Mexico have greeted the USMCA, that is the revised NAFTA. I know the House of Representatives in the United States added some extra attention to worker protection. I know that uh, GM workers, I guess, in Mexico are now looking to unionize and take advantage of one of those provisions that was added to USMCA. But just in general, as someone who advises clients and businesses in this area, how is USMCA being greeted? Yes, I mean, that's a
2: very good question. It has been on play since July 2020. I mean, time flies. Actually, I mean, what we are seeing is, I mean, at first, if you focus on what clients do day in, day out, essentially what they do in Mexico is that they import goods and they rely on NAFTA before and currently on USMCA to get a preferential duty treatment. So essentially, I mean, what we saw at first is that clients were really concerned about the certification process. Remember that within NAFTA, I mean, it was provided that a hard copy of the certificate origin was supposed to be delivered from exporters or producers, either in U.S. or Canada, to Mexican importers. So the most significant change that we visualized, clients' were concerned was about the differences between NAFTA and USMCA, which basically consists that NAFTA, as I already mentioned, required a certificate of origin. And USMCA, in contrast, it requires a certification of origin. So the certificate of origin was basically substituted with a certification that was supposed to be done or is supposed to be done by covering nine specific points in a free format. So the first questions were how should we comply with these nine points and how should we provide a document or a certification for it? At the end, I mean, all importers and exporters and producers arrived to the conclusion that they needed to work with a format, and a specific format. So the importations have been conducted by importers, as in our experience, I mean, using the, the form that they compile internally. And there are differences between the forms we have seen from one client to the other, but both, I mean, uh, comply with the nine points required by, by the USMC. Now, if we're talking about rules foraging and the complexities to comply with the same, it would be different. I mean, from one industry to the other. Obviously, if you were talking about automotive industry, it's a different complexity in contrast with Other industries. We have seen many, many companies from this industry actually uh, suffering to comply. I mean, with the percentages established in USMCA, as you have seen, I mean, Mexico and Canada have been pushing against. The U.S. position with respect to the compliance of this rule of origin that there have been complaints filed by Mexico and Canada against the U.S. And essentially that's what we are seeing. Mexico, in contrast with what happens in the U.S., according to my understanding, Mexico is really active. I mean, with respect to verifications of origin. And I have been involved in some cases when Mexican clients want to export and somehow they are notified by Customs and Border Protection of the beginning of verifications of origin. But at some point, I mean, those verifications of origin are conducted within one or less than one month and closed. And in Mexico, it's the opposite. Once the Mexican Tax Administration Service, which is the one faculty, initiate this kind of procedures, once it triggers a process against the U.S., Exporter or producer, they have two years to continue this audit process and actually they take around the whole two years. So it's completely different. It's really formalistic and we have suffered with many clients. I mean, the part of gathering not only the purchases of all raw materials with purchase orders, invoices, payments, but we have also navigated the difficulty of demonstrating that those raw materials were in fact used in the production of a finished good lately exported to Mexico and certified as NAFTA or USMCA originated. So this has been somehow complex, explaining the clients, I mean, how Mexico is really formalistic and Mexican authorities are used to see copies of purchase orders, of invoices of payments and the reality is that these kind of documents have been extended because now everyone's work with SAP, SAP or other kind of softwares and purchase orders invoices, payments, and production records are stored within these systems. So it has been a disaster, I mean, trying to prove the authority based on screenshots pulled out from these systems that actually, I mean, transactions were made, that raw materials were purchased and actually used in the manufacturing of finished goods certified as Originated. So essentially, this is what we have been suffering, despite the fact, obviously, that we have on a high level issues about the compliance with rules of origin.
1: You just used a word that has been occurring to me frequently as I listen to you, which is compliance. Of course, I'm a litigator who does internal corporate investigations, and we teach compliance with the anti-bribery laws and the anti-money laundering laws to deal with anti-corruption regimes. I hear you describing so many touch points between private businesses on the one hand and authorities on the other hand, touch points that are not going well. There's full of friction and difficulty, including what a visual, to have to share a screenshot instead of a a copy of a purchase order with a bureaucrat you know there is certainly a lot of perception of corruption in the world. Transparency International publishes about it. Mexico ranks very poorly, as you know, in terms of the relative perception of corruption. And I wonder if you can just comment a little bit on where things stand in terms of how businesses that are multinational, that have to comply with the FCPA, and who have to deal with Mexican authorities, how strong are compliance systems? What is the difficulty of dealing with Mexican authorities, you know, for foreign businesses? What would you say to foreign businesses about that problem? Sure. I mean, it's
2: a really complex question. First, because I'm not focused on anti-corruption, but I'm pretty knowledgeable of what happens in the country. And I know, I mean, from many of my partners that are focused on anti-corruption, I mean, what it happens with respect to FCPA and that kind of issues. First of all, I would say that our national anti-corruption system was created on May, 2015. So it's pretty new. If, if you contrast it, with what you have in the U.S. It's not as strange to me, and I have seen it, when I've been invited to some clients' offices in Mexico to see a monitor from the DOJ seated there based on certain investigations. That has exactly. been something that I have experienced, and that indicates to me how serious this is taken by the U.S. In Mexico, what I can tell, I mean, when you're dealing with federal tax authorities and federal customs authorities, it's untypical to see corruption because you're on a federal level. However, I have been told, I mean, from many clients, that they have somehow have been approached by some authorities on a local level when they are assessed in an audit process I mean, they have been approached, I mean, to close the audit process in the incorrect way. What I can say, I mean, and this will give you a better reference of what we are living here in Mexico, based on what you probably have seen in the news. But, I mean, Mexico's president, Son, is involved currently in some sort of scandal because he rented or leased a house in Woodlands in Houston from an officer of an oil company based in the U.S., which in my understanding, it's a public company. So based on this lack of knowledge I have on the legal aspects of anti-corruption, what I can tell from what I have seen is that that's a Foreign Corrupt Practice Act, probably, because this oil company actually has executed many, many agreements with the Mexican National Petroleum Company, which is Pemex. So if you take in consideration what I just mentioned, that I have seen monitors from the DOJ seated at Mexican entities' offices, it would not be as strange for me, I mean, that the DOJ by itself, that you tell me, can initiate or trigger an investigation directly because a foreign foreign company located at the US has deals or has dealt with agreements with the Mexican National Petroleum Company and somehow the Mexico's president's son is involved
1: well i spent a good bit of time trying to advise foreign companies on why they are subject to the anti-corruption provisions of the foreign corrupt practices act in the united states where they have some presence in the United States, a bank account, an office, a person who comes to a trade show. And in connection with all of those contacts, there's a business or a transaction that becomes subject to potential examination for being a bribe or an attempted bribe. And certainly the problem for the president's son is the timing. Shortly after this very beneficial arrangement in Houston, his company began to have very beneficial business results. And so what the FCPA deals with very specifically, of course, as you know, is where a benefit is provided individually to foreign government official directly or indirectly in order to obtain or retain business. And that'll be what we'll have to all stay tuned and watch and find out about, but, but Malcolm, let me turn it back over to you. We have just a little bit of time left for maybe one more question for our guest. Thank you so much, Hunter. And
0: yeah, it's fascinating because it directly relates to my practice area, which includes litigation and advisement on FCPA and other regulatory issues. My practice has focused to a large part on inbound Asian business from China, Japan, Indonesia, now Malaysia. And I know that China has been a significant investor in Mexico. And I'm curious with recent events, what is the trend? Is a trend the same? Has the trend continued with the interest in Chinese investment in Mexico, what have you seen? Even if it's if you don't have any direct information on that, anecdotal information is also important.
2: Yes, I mean that question or point takes me to the COVID pandemic. We have seen I mean many, many clients or industries onshoring, near shoring, reshoring, whatever you want to call it. But we have seen these since the last two years. And that takes me as well to China. China Despite of the pandemic, I mean, it started somehow a challenge between trade with the U.S. And in that sense, I mean, China, we have seen they are trying to nearshore. If you talk to them, they are offshoring. But we're seeing them nearshoring to the U.S. I read some days ago that Mexico is now the second partner with respect to trade with the U.S. Some previous months, it was the first because China was the second. And now China is the first, again, that's what I read. So obviously China is really interested in being a part of this supply process for the US. So we have experienced, I mean, for the last two years, which was different from what we have seen in the previous years, because we obviously saw, I mean, many, many goods coming from China imported into Mexico, but we have never experienced it as we have been experienced for the last two years. Actual Chinese investments arriving into Mexico to incorporate entities and basically establish manufacturing sites. That basically tells us that they are trying to near shore to the US to basically, I mean, in their finished production. So I don't have the numbers. The numbers are there, certainly, but I can tell that we have seen very aggressive investments in Mexico, in different industries, not just in the automotive. We have seen electrodomestics. We have seen optic fiber and many, many other examples I can give you. This is something that has changed, obviously. And I think that Mexico has a really complex situation right here because Mexico can't have it both ways. On one hand, it has the USMCA. And the USMCA clearly states that Mexico, essentially, it doesn't specify it like this, but basically it states that it cannot execute a free trade agreement with a non-market economy, such as China. So essentially, Mexico can't play both ways. It needs to decide or determine if it will continue strengthening its relationship with the US or if it will bet on China. Both are superpowers, if you ask to me, I think that our strong ties with the U.S. should let Mexico to bet on the U.S., to continue betting on the U.S. That takes me as well to the recent position of Mexico with respect to the sanctions against Russia. Mexico has been really clear that it would not impose unilaterally sanctions against Russia. Instead, it has stated, I mean, the foreign minister and and the president by itself, that Since it is part of the UN Security Council, if the UN, I mean, imposes a multilateral sanction, Mexico will follow that route. But it would not impose any unilateral sanction. In contrast, you have export controls. Mexico is part of many, many agreements that regulate export controls. And recently, we saw, I mean, that the Minister of Economy published a draft in a portal where drafts of new provisions are about to be published, to be discussed. It's not in force currently, but it has published a draft stating that any export of goods with a dual purpose for the manufacture of, of weapons of mass destruction or weapons to Belarus or Russia will be forbidden. So, in essence, on one hand, you have these statements from the president and the foreign minister, but you have this other framework that Mexico needs to comply with respect to their export controls obligations.
1: Eduardo, you're touching on something that Malcolm and I just talked about the other day with one of our partners who's an expert on sanctions, K. Georgie and Matthew Tuckband, which is this concept called overcompliance that Let's say that a U.S. or other unilateral sanction doesn't technically apply to an export from a Mexican factory. But nevertheless, the business is concerned about vagueness in the application of that export control in determining whether, for example, U.S. software was used in the process and therefore it falls under the foreign direct product rules. And so the companies fall into a gray zone and go into overcompliance in order to protect themselves against future enforcement action. My question for you has to do with the reality today. Never mind what the politicians are saying. How are businesses in Mexico reacting to the global sanctions that have been imposed, to the restrictions on banking, the blocking sanctions, and the export controls? How is it affecting Mexican business today?
2: Yes, I mean, for instance, as you correctly pointed out, I mean, let's forget about politics or politicians conducting statements. I read yesterday that Bimbo, which is one of the largest, largest bread company in the world has suspended operations in Russia. Obviously the government is saying something, but the enterprises, I mean, are conducting unilateral actions such as this one. And we will see in the next days, probably additional enterprises in Mexico big enterprises, I mean, conducting certain shutdowns in Russia, because if Mexico has not imposed unilateral economic sanctions to Russia, that's one thing. But considering, I mean, that many, many countries, such as the U.S., have imposed these kind of sanctions, you need to think, you need to review and think and get good advice on the extraterritorial effect that these measures of other countries have. What would be the effects on your activities and your companies? So I have seen, I mean, not only, I mean, in this case, but in previous cases, such as the case with Venezuela, where Mexican entities conducting businesses in the U.S. have stopped operations when somehow certain countries such as the U.S. have imposed, I mean, sanctions to these countries. And somehow, I mean, the fact of conducting business with the U.S. impacts what you do with other countries. So I believe that even though Mexico has not imposed these unilateral sanctions, it is advisable, I mean, that you need to review extraterritorial effects.
1: That certainly sounds smart and very wise. Eduardo, we're telling our clients much the same thing. You know, of course, it's all evolving very rapidly, so it's too soon to tell for some steps, but certainly getting advice quickly on extraterritorial effects of blocking sanctions or of export control sanctions, understanding how business interruption will result from lack of access to banking and banking accounts and SWIFT system and correspondent banks because claims are gonna have to be made and our history with the last couple of years during the pandemic is that a lot of clients thought they could rely on a force majeure clause in their contract, but when they open up their contract, To their surprise, it's either there's no clause or the clause is written to apply to certain kinds of things, but not the kind of situation that developed with the pandemic. Courts in the past have dealt with whether sanctions are the kind of thing that a force majeure clause applies to. Of course, every case is different, but the results seem to be a little inconsistent as to the degree of, let me say, impossibility of performance. And then, of course, while there are possibilities to do so, you may run terrible risks in suspending your business because of overcompliance. When there are alternatives such as seeking adequate assurances of performance, it may be that a Russian counterparty or some other European counterparty that depends on a Russian supplier can provide adequate assurances of performance because they can access legitimate funds in unblocked accounts or they can export from unblocked countries. Well, but there's much more of a conversation to have there. Malcolm, I'll turn it over to you for the final word. Yeah, and I'm going to ask one last question
0: because it was fascinating, and I have followed the Mexico position regarding sanctions. And I don't know this personally, but how significant is the Russia-Mexico trade relationship? Is it significant or not so significant, or where would you put it on a scale of 1 to 10? I guess that's what I would ask, Eduardo, if you know
2: Yes, I believe that Mexico's trade with Russia is not so significant. I would not diminish it completely, but obviously, I mean, it's not one of the strongest partners for Mexico, such as Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua have with this country. I think that Mexico has good tourism. Respected to Russia. I mean, there are many Russians coming to Mexico uh, for tourism purposes. But again, I mean, you still have some amount of trade with Russia. Weapons, obviously, that's one industry that I think covers not just Mexico, but many other countries. You have beer, you have some other goods. But I will not say, I mean, that Russia is one of the strongest partners for Mexico. I mean, I think it will be a good relationship, such as the one it manages with or it holds with many other countries. But I wouldn't tell, I mean, that Russia is a strong partner for Mexico with respect to trade.
0: Very good Eduardo, well, with that, I think I would like to say muchas gracias for your generous use of your time. Now I'll revert back to English again, okay? But I want to say that it's been fascinating because it's always interesting to hear from people, not just, say, in the community, but it's interesting to hear what's going on on the ground. And I hope our listeners have found some nuggets of wisdom that they're going to be able to use for their future decision-making and reflection.
1: Hunter, would you like to say a word or two? Just a word of thanks, Eduardo. I think anyone listening to this program will know that we covered a very wide amount of territory and could have gone much more deeply into any one of those questions. Just grateful that our firms have this great friendship and that we can work across these many areas together and looking forward to doing so much more of that uh, together. With that, we will wrap up today's podcast. I thank Malcolm and our guest, Eduardo Sotelo-Cauduro from the Sanchez Devani Law Firm in Mexico.